0: Uh, before we start, I just want to say thanks to everyone for all their prayers. As many of you uh, know, Joanne's brother died this past Friday, and uh, we'll be heading up next weekend to Massachusetts for his funeral. He did know the Lord and loved the Lord, had an uh, interesting life, um, and we're going to go celebrate that. But We would appreciate uh, uh, all of your uh, prayers Uh, particularly next weekend when we'll have the funeral service up in Massachusetts. We are in Genesis 15, starting Genesis 15, the first uh, six verses today. And this passage contains one of the critical verses in the Bible, in the whole Bible. It's quoted uh, numerous times. It's one of the few Old Testament passages that's just verbatim quoted several times in the New Testament, not just referred to or alluded to. This is uh, uh, what we would call a landmark text uh, for our understanding of the faith. So let's turn to that uh, now, Genesis chapter 15. Let's read the first six verses. Please listen carefully as this is God's Word. After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you as always for giving us the scriptures and for making us your people. Thank you this morning for this church family. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray you would give us a greater understanding of who you are and what you say and what you promise and what faith really is. We think we know these things, but our understanding of them is so limited. We try to hide our doubts and we try to hide our fears, but you see right through us. Speak to us this morning by your word. Give us ears to hear and minds to grasp what you say. And for this, we need your grace. We need your spirit. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. According to the writers of Hebrews and Genesis, the link between faith and righteousness is not a New Testament invention, nor is it a patriarchal innovation. Instead, the vital connection between faith and righteousness is actually rooted in primeval history, before the flood. In the lives of three uh, very famous pre-flood patriarchs, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, make this very clear. Of Abel, we read uh, in Hebrews 11, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Faith, righteousness was exemplified in earth's first family by the second son of Adam and Eve. Of Enoch, we read in Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. The metaphor walked indicates a close communion and intimacy, a righteous life. Enoch's godly walk grew out of his faith, and Hebrews makes that clear, going back again to Hebrews 11. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that He should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. According to the next verse, Hebrews 11, 6, says, And without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. Enoch's God-pleasing faith believed that God is. That's a little literal translation of the Greek where it says we must believe that he exists, he believed that God is, that the sovereign God of creation is uh, the one living and true God. He also believed that God rewards those who seek him, that God is uh, positively just and equitable. And as a result, we read in Jude, it was also about these, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude records that Enoch became a preacher of righteousness, apparently for his entire life, some three centuries. Enoch's life demonstrates a righteousness based on faith. And then we come to Noah, Genesis 6. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. And again, that walk with God identifies him with the godly character of Enoch. But even more significant, the statement that Noah was a righteous man is the first occurrence of the word righteous in the Bible. Noah's righteousness is not derived from him being perfect, or any other uh, righteousness, but because he believed God. And again, as the writer of Hebrews explains, again in Hebrews 11, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. The biblical doctrine of imputed righteousness, a righteousness which comes from God, began here in primeval history before the flood. We have to keep that in mind as we get to Genesis uh, chapter 15, which is the Bible, as I said earlier, the Bible's landmark text for understanding the relationship between faith and righteousness. Righteousness through faith is not new with Abram. It's intrinsic in primeval pre-flood history. We see it in the lives of Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Now, primeval history ended with the flood and the rise and fall of the Tower of Babel. And patriarchal history begins with the story of Abraham. And at this point, he's still Abram. We have a couple chapters to go before his name gets changed. And Abram becomes the great example of faith, according to Romans 4, the father of all who believe. Now, if you could graph out Abram's faith, uh, sort of graph his life of faith it's kind of i think like most of us an uneven graph you know we'd like to think it starts here and it just keeps getting better it's not exactly how it went of course it soars when he hears uh god's word and he leaves Ur and he travels west across the fertile crescent and down the other side south heading towards canaan and it spikes even higher when Abram travels the land and builds altars and calls on the name of the Lord. But then the graph would dive pretty dramatically in this disastrous trip to Egypt. But then after Egypt, it gently rises again. When he returns to Canaan, he's repentant. He rises more in his generous faith-based dealings with his nephew Lot. And then in chapter 14, as we saw last week, if you didn't hear that, and I encourage you to go back and and listen to that on the podcast. This faith graft would, again, sweep upward with his noble uh, rescue of Lot from the kings of the east and his continued nobility as he's blessed by Melchizedek and gives him gifts, refuses to keep the plunder of the eastern kings. Abram models faith to the entire world. But now, we start chapter 15, and it says, After these things... All these things that have gone before, and it seems that Abram's faith slows down and kind of spasms with doubt and fear. That's not uncommon in human experience, uh, particularly following uh, strenuous victories and great highs. Think about when you know when's the easiest time to get depressed. It's the day or two after the great retreat. You went on the great retreat. It was awesome. And then you came back and it was like reality. And you're like, oh, we had such a great time. We got away from all of this. But you have to come back to this. And that's true in all of our experience. Remember the story of Elijah. He suffered similar effects after his uh, uh, tremendous victory over the priests of Baal at Mount Carmel. Great story. You can find it in 1 Kings 18 and 19. But after this... Incredible victory, he flees to the wilderness and asks God to let him die. Here at the beginning of Genesis 15, it seems that Abram is tired, fearful, and despondent. Humanly, there's lots of reasons for him to fear uh, reprisals from this eastern coalition. Bigger armies might return. He has just defeated armies in battle. And of course, they may come back. And he had, I imagine, plenty of times for a reflection in the quiet that always follows a battle. His great victory has not actually brought him any nearer to his promised inheritance. Long ago, he first responded to God's call back in Genesis 11. We were told that Sarah was barren. And their journey had become in barrenness, but with hope in God's promise, And they had this thousand-mile journey, the sojourn in Canaan, this fiasco in Egypt, a return to Canaan, a victory over the kings, are all carried out under this ever-looming shadow of barrenness. And that barrenness still persists. Abram's servants had children. Other men's children clung to his garments. And I'm thinking it's likely that Abram is thinking, So what if everybody knows my name from the Nile to the Euphrates? So what if I'm rich? What difference does it make if I have no children? And restless dark doubt gripped his faltering heart. The fearless Abram that we just saw in chapter 14 now feared. But then something happened. And that something was Abram hearing that God speaks. God speaks. That's the first blank in your outline. And that's huge in the Bible. When God speaks, something is about to happen. It says, verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, Abram may have suffered his doubts in silence. Text doesn't actually say. But God knows what's going on on the inside, both for Abram and you. And this close connection with the preceding text, Genesis 14, suggests an immediacy of God's response. Verse 1, after these things, The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Visions in Scripture are for the purpose of communicating the word of God. Abram had a vision in the night, but what he saw wasn't important. What he heard was. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And this divine greeting, fear not, Abram. Another first, first time we get that. Well, that shakes him because it reveals that God knows all about him. And God knows what's going on inside of him. And I imagine that Abram shivered in the nakedness of what is now an exposed unbelief. And so next, Abram, whose foes now extend from the Euphrates to the Nile, everywhere where they know his name, hears God say, I am your shield against every enemy. And then in reference, you remember his generous refusal to share in any of the plunder they took from the four kings. God says, your reward shall be very great. All Abram got for his labors, all Abram got for his victories was God. That's all. God was teaching Abram to be satisfied with God alone. That demonstrates, of course, what God desires to give us as we submit to the disciplines of a life of faith. He teaches us that to be satisfied with him is enough to know and believe that he is our all in all. But still, Abram wanted children. Not that he didn't want God. But right now he doubts that God's going to keep his promise. And that promise was for children. And so we see Abram's response, verses 2 and 3. Abram's response. His unbelief now is exposed. And so Abram is stung sort of into a verbal lament. He, He kind of protests to God. By the way, this is also the first time that Abram speaks to God. This is his first dialogue with the divine. Up to now, he's just heard from God, but now we have him essentially talking back. Your children didn't invent that. Verses 2 and 3. Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram is unhappy. But he notice he's very careful to address God as Lord God, which emphasized that he still knew that God was the master and he was the servant. Abram isn't going to let his doubt and distress compromise his respect and reverence for God. And yet his skepticism in light of the divine promise of God to be his shield and his great reward is pretty obvious here. His conclusion is that God's promise had been of no effect so that a household servant like Eliezer would be his heir. And that kind of adoption was common where he came from, so be it. It appears that Abram is on the edge of giving up. But we have a God who is gracious and patient and understanding. As the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 30, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is the God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And as King David taught his own son Solomon, First Chronicles 28, and you Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Well, since God understands, he is able to give Abram his assurance. Verses 4 and 5, God's assurance now God deals very tenderly and lovingly with his stumbling servant Abram first God says verse 4 behold the word of the Lord came to him this man shall not be your heir your very own son shall be your heir three times previously God had promised Abram a multitude of descendants. Initially, when he called them in earth, Genesis 12, 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then at Canaan, uh, in, at Shechem, where he built an altar, Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. And last, from the highest spot, in uh, central Palestine, as Abram was surveying the promised land in every direction, Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. But what God said now is new. The Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner has written, it was not an argument but a revelation. Now he's telling him that a son from his own body would be his heir. The heir is going to be his son by birth further question is going to arise in Genesis 16 and 17 having to do whether uh, whether or not the barren Sarah could possibly be the mother but Abram is rocked and captivated by this revelation and then God follows it up with words of reassurance employs sort of a visual aid verse 5 and he brought him outside and said look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now numerous times during the summer nights, Joanne and I will go out on the back deck on a dark night and turn the lights off and just sort of look from horizon to horizon at the planets and the stars, you know, whatever we can see. Some nights the sky is full of stars. It's always an awesome experience. We're always reminded of God. I think such times are beneficial for our souls. Now, the only unawed among us when we do that are our dogs, who never look up, ever. They're occupied with their own universe of smells, which is very low. You have to remember here, Abram had previously been a moon worshiper. He stood atop the ziggurat and ur atop uh, with the temple, of the moon god, Nana, he's familiar with planets and stars. And now he's alone in the silence, in the dark, with God Almighty, who spoke to him. God takes Abram outside and gets him to stare up at the stars, which in that part of the world, in that day and age, would have been some kind of show. I mean, the sky that Abram looked at that night would have been a sky that was fuller and more stunning than any sky you and I have ever seen. There's no competition from city skylines or streetlights or headlights or anything. There would simply be this jet black sky filled with countless points of light. Abram is humbled and awed and hushed, speechless. He looks up and there's only stars and planets. And God links his promise of a son and many descendants visually to the spectacle of the night sky such that every time Abram looked up for the rest of his life, he would remember this moment. Every time he saw the stars at night, these words, this moment would come to mind. And so when God speaks a second time, Abram responds, a second time but this time Abram doesn't respond with doubt and disbelief but with faith and belief we see that in verse 6 Abram's belief what's happening here although Abram didn't speak scripture does and verse 6 says and he believed the Lord the Hebrew sense of that word is that he believed and continued believing the Lord what happened with Abram? How did his faith come back? It certainly wasn't because he all of a sudden felt powerful or his expectations were raised. He's simply awed by God, and he rests on God's promise. In this moment, God's Word is not a theory about how things would turn out, but the voice around which Abram's life would be organized. We also know that Abram must have repented. Ultimately, this new faith, this fresh faith, can only be attributed to God. His faith is not a human achievement. It's not a result of his moral will. He's just going to suck it up and do better and believe more. It comes from God. Very much like Peter's confession of uh, Christ in Matthew, where he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How had Peter come to that? Jesus tells us uh, in that next verse in Matthew 16, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In the same way, Abraham moved from protest to profession by the power of God. Very much as the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not... Uh, your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This was, of course, not the first time that Abram had put his faith in God's Word. He had believed him now for over a decade. But here his faith is defined. This clarification is a landmark in our understanding of faith. You know, I'm wondering if maybe the lights are triggered by sound. You know, that would be really cool. We'll just take it when they all come on. I said something really important. (laughs) This whole verse says, And he believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. No other Old Testament text has exercised such influence in understanding faith and in understanding the New Testament itself. The Hebrew verb uh, here for counted as our text has it, is hasav. It means counted. Some versions will translate it reckoned or imputed. Counted it to him as righteousness. We'll see that phrase again in Psalm 106. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Note that Abram isn't described as doing righteousness, but his faith as counted as righteousness, credited, reckoned as righteousness. Abram, who's originally destitute of righteousness, was a pagan idol worshiper, is now counted as righteous through faith in God. As the Dutch theologian, Gerhard von Rad said, Above all, as righteousness is not the result of any accomplishment, whether of sacrifice or acts of obedience, it is stated programmatically that belief alone has brought Abraham into a proper relationship to God. And that understanding is revolutionary. What it's saying is around 2000 B.C., Abram is declared righteous because of his faith. And that declaration is in profound agreement with the earlier fathers, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And that principle remains operative through primeval history, patriarchal history, The entire Old Covenant era is the foundation of the New Covenant. It continues and is reaffirmed in the New Testament, and it remains in force today. And that's because it's a universal principle. It's a universal principle. Genesis 15.6 is quoted in full in three New Testament passages. Romans 4, Galatians 3, and James 2. So let's look at those. Romans 4, this is actually an extended exposition of Genesis 15, 6, in which the text is quoted three times, and the Greek equivalent to the word uh, hasav, or counted, is quoted 11 times. Remember in the Bible, repetition means it's important. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul argues that salvation comes only through faith for Abraham then David, then the Gentiles, and then for all those under the law. Now, in the case of David, he refers to David's uh, blessedness and joyous relief. This is the passage we read as our responsive reading this morning. Uh, His relief at having his sins against Bathsheba and Uriah forgiven and this undeserved righteousness bestowed upon him as it's described in Psalm 32. Paul introduces this psalm In Romans 4, quotes its opening two verses. David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. you read those verses again, Romans 4, verses 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul points to Psalm 32 and its use of the word counted. And and the reason he does that is David has broken at least three of the Ten Commandments outright. I think he's broken all of them. And one fell shot in the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, He knocks over the Ten Commandments like dominoes. He coveted Bathsheba, committed adultery, murdered Uriah, the Old Testament sacrificial system makes uh, no provision for that kind of premeditated sin. And that's why David cries out Psalm 51, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I will would, would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. David's case is hopeless. There's nothing he can do but cast himself on God's mercy. And this is what David did by faith. And thus God forgave his transgressions, covered his sin, and did not count his sins against him. In effect, God credited him as righteous apart from his works, as Paul says in Romans 4. And here Paul calls David blessed, and David twice calls himself blessed. In Psalm 32, because there's no work that can possibly atone for his sins. He's forgiven on the basis of faith. So this principle of counted, credited, reckoned, imputed righteousness is powerfully illustrated in the life of Israel's greatest king, who are told twice, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, that he is a man after God's own heart. In the same way, nothing you and I can do can ever atone for our sins. Our only hope is, as Paul writes in Romans 3, the righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the heart of the gospel right there, those two verses. In respect to Gentiles, Paul argues in Romans 4, that Abram was saved by faith while he was still a Gentile. And therefore, that faith principle is universal. Paul shows that Genesis 15, 6 occurred at least 14 years before Abram was circumcised, and thus he was still a Gentile. And therefore, both Jews and Gentiles have always been saved by faith. He makes a similar argument to those under the law. He explains in Romans 4, 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The historical fact, as Paul wrote uh, later in Galatians 3, or actually earlier in Galatians 3, because Galatians came before Romans, the law came 430 years after Abraham was made heir to the promise by faith. And so there's no way the law could invalidate or restrict that promise. To make the promise conditional on obedience to law, which was not even hinted at when the promise was given, would nullify the whole thing. Righteousness and its benefits have always come by faith to those who live by faith. In this passage, Paul is saying, don't be fooled. The principle of faith transcends the law. Abram was credited as righteous because of his faith. So is David. Righteousness through faith precedes the Jewish people, precedes the law. Salvation comes only through faith. That is the way it has always been. Second passage is Galatians 3. Very quickly, second place is Paul makes major reference to Genesis 15:6, is in Galatians 3. It says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul here is arguing somewhat brilliantly that the faith principle is what makes possible the blessing of all the nations through Abraham. The gospel is part of God's initial call to Abraham. Then we jump to James 2. James, the Lord's brother, quotes Genesis 15, 6 in developing a more balanced doctrine of faith. In James 2, it says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? See that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says God, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. See that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's always been a controversial passage. James is arguing that authentic faith is a faith that works. James never actually confused faith and works. He understood them to be separate. James would agree that we're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. He says if there's a faith without works, it's not real faith. If your faith is alone, you're in the grip of some kind of eternal delusion. And he's urging you to a real faith, which is a faith that works. And it's always been the same under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Faith brings justification and salvation. If we go back to those uh, primeval fathers that we started with, that's the way it was uh, for Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Abel was saved by faith, but it wasn't a faith that was alone because it produced uh, better works than Cain. Same for Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so he should not see death. Enoch's faith was such that he walked with God before he was no more. He had a real faith, a faith that worked. Same for Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. His profound faith produced profound obedience and those works are monumental genesis 6 says he did all that god commanded him his was a faith that worked and so now we see it's true with abram as well in fact back all the way back to hebrews 11 we see by faith abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going abraham was saved by faith alone but a faith that was not alone. It was a faith that worked. He actually had to obey and do what God told him to do. So let me close with two questions based on this landmark text. And everything we see as the Apostle Paul expands that in Romans and Galatians and as James does. And the first question is, have you rested your faith on God the Son the Lord Jesus Christ, alone for your salvation? That's the first question. Do you trust your works or Christ? Now, if you answer, I'm trusting Christ alone, then the second question is, has your faith produced works? Is your faith real enough that it has changed your life? Now, those are useful questions because you're saved by faith alone, But if it's true faith, it's a faith that's not alone, but a faith that works. Salvation is in no other name but Jesus. Have you believed and trusted in him alone for your salvation? And if you say that you have, has your life changed? We're about to come to the Lord's table for communion. This is a time to do business with God. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is a time to confess your sins and renew your faith. Perhaps you say all the right things, profess your faith in Christ, just like most of the people here, but truth be told, your life doesn't look any different than anyone else's in the world, Monday through Friday. If your faith is never put into action, what kind of faith is it really? Perhaps you want to have faith but struggle with your doubts. Quite frankly, you're not sure what to believe. And for all of you, Christ invites you to faith. He challenges you to believe in him. He dares you to look at the works he did here on earth and not believe. One other time a doubter came to him and asked him for more evidence. And to that man and us, he says, John 14, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me, John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The call of Abram, the call of Paul, The call of Jesus is the same. It is a call to believe. It is a call to believe in Jesus. It is a call to act on that belief. We, you, me, all of us, are called to have a faith that is seen. So the question is, can we see yours? Can we see yours? You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, thank you that you're not a God who's judging our performance, waiting for us to meet your expectations, condemning us for our doubts and fears. Thank you that you have spoken to us just as you did to our father Abraham. Thank you that you showed so much grace to Abraham We so much want you to show the same grace to us, especially when we doubt and especially when we're afraid. Thank you for reassuring us that you understand us, that you accept us, that you forgive us, that you teach us what things like grace and faith truly mean. We ask you this morning to make them a part of our lives. Lord, again, thank you that no one is beyond your grace. Thank you that we are not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. And for all of this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.